Welcome to episode six on American exceptionalism with Strangleholds on America. I am co-host number one and number two, Liam Ayrton Hewitt. <laughs> You're still doing that, huh? And I'm, I guess, co-host number three. I never really thought of it that way. Michael Fiorello. I don't know. We'll find the secret fourth co-host soon enough. Well, I didn't even know there was a fourth. That's the, that's why it's so mysterious. You guys listening <laughs> to Strangleholds on America, as Liam mentioned. Uh, we are a podcast that likes to focus on a whole lot of different topics, especially those within politics, history, and uh, more explicitly within America. And we look at a lot of American issues, kind of things in the, that are you know, currently going on. We look at uh, just a very broad ranging topics and just kind of things that interest us. So this week in the episode that we are calling except the exceptionally american episode we are looking at the myth or not myth of american exceptionalism uh depending on your ideological perspective oh ideological perspective indeed honestly american exceptionalism is just such a breadth of a topic because like the question of what is nationalism and when american exceptionalism is such a gray area yeah i mean it's just like history right like there's so much like what is you know, what what's the best way to to explore american history like what you know what what is the events that make us american and it's like so hard to come up with that you know as we know yeah. being in school especially when it comes down to the question of what are the events that are making america what it is now oh that's it's... even harder i don't even know i don't i don't even want to touch that topic I mean, you could almost call it American history or something. <laughs> almost, maybe. But okay. So, yeah, thank you guys for listening. We are going to jump right into it. But first, I wanted to give a couple shout outs for our social media accounts, which some of you guys are probably not following. <laughs> if you're listening to this, please follow our social medias. We are on Twitter at StrangleholdsAM. We're on Instagram, Strangleholds on America. And then we're on YouTube, Strangle, Space Hold, Space On, Space America. If you guys want to see our beautiful shining faces, because we are doing these remote now, so we're recording our faces as we converse. Yeah, COVID-19 hits uh, everyone equally, it would seem here. And by everyone equally, I mean uh, the rich unequally. I was, I was about to say, I don't know if I agree with that statement. But all right, yep, never mind. Liam is expressing his own views, not those of Strangleholds on America as a as a group an organization as a group <laughs> an organization to represent so many people <laughs> right i like to i like to say you know this is our murka fuck yeah episode Ooh. Uh, so I, let's just get right into it right shall we i've got no complaints okay so i guess i'll start off just by kind of outlining for all of our listeners out there who may not understand American exceptionalism. I mean, you guys may be from another country. I, I don't know. You guys may be uh, living under a rock. You guys may need... <laughs> There's a lot of reasons why you might not understand it. I mean, you another might... Another thing exists outside of America? What? I didn't... I didn't, I didn't go that far. Like, don't go... <laughs> he's, having a, he's having an epiphany. Um, whatever it may be, I mean, you guys may understand these things and inherently uh, view exceptionalism, but you don't know exactly, you know, some of the tenets that a lot of people like to focus on when they talk about what how america is so exceptional and by exceptional uh, obviously we mean we are unique and superior and so um and the best that's what it means and so essentially people like to talk about our origins development social and economic slash political characteristics as kind of a very broad focus of what makes us so exceptional you know what makes america distinct not even distinct because distinct is like every country is distinct, obviously. But this is something that literally what puts us head and shoulders over other countries. Oh, yeah. uh, it's what's mind blowing to me is like, even though you've already addressed it, it's so vague. It's like our origin, our yeah. GDP, like what we do, our belief in freedom and liberty, like all of that is so ridiculously vague because 
when did that start? Why did that start? Does that start before America came? Does that start with the pilgrims? Is that something we can attribute like to the previous countries that we've hailed from? Like, it's just, it's so vague. It is really. And I think that's kind of by design. I mean, it's not supposed to be all encompassing. It's like, it is and it isn't right. I mean, like people take credit for so much of American socialism. Like, you know, we are, we have the most, uh, you know, GDP. We are the highest GDP of all other countries. Like, you know, there's a lot of underlying factors to those points that a lot of people fail to bring up. Like, you know, does that mean that our system is equal? Does that mean that uh, certain people are favored over others? I mean, there's a lot of like just inherently, um, you know, greater conversations we can have about all these topics. And it just, I think that's one of the, 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 um, ruts you can get in with this topic is like you can just be so so short-minded in saying like you know we are exceptional because these things without actually expanding on what those things are and you know maybe even really understanding what those things um entail so like Liam mentioned we a lot of people like to look at it as uh you know America being distinct in that we have a much different way of looking at liberty and freedom of opportunity like I mentioned we are the largest economy uh, which is kind of a borderline one now. Uh, we have the highest GDP, which I'm pretty sure that's accurate. And then they like to talk about social mobility and wealth distribution, which is kind of ironic in a lot of ways. Because I, I mean, it, we are definitely not number one on social mobility in the world. No, yeah, you can ask so many different people that question and get so many different responses. And I think that's a big facet of American exceptionalism and how it has. I don't want to say tainted, but tainted people's perspective of ourselves. Um, so, anyway, I was going to say one thing um, on, okay. that, on that point. I think with the social mobility, what people like to conflate that term with is the American dream, which we talked about last episode with the whole welfare system and uh, you know understanding what the ramifications of that are. And I think a lot of people like to continue to think that America is this bastion of you can come here, you can work hard, you can work your way up the social ladder, uh, you know, the economic ladder and and make a name for yourself and, and make yourself a family. And so I think a lot of people like to cling to that idea. And that's, I think, where a lot of that comes from within the uh, whole understanding of American exceptionalism, just to point out. So I'm going to go for the jugular here and kind of offer a counter, a very brief counter argument for this. Yeah. So while Michael's done an amazing job of explaining what what American exceptionalism is as an idea and like what it is. There's a lot of people who believe that it's total malarkey, very Mm -hmm. literally. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, from uh, Noam Chomsky, (laughs) to quote him, he says, uh, well, first of all, uh, I'm not a fan of American exceptionalism. That's like saying I'm not a fan of the moon being made out of green cheese. It doesn't exist. Uh So like – while American exceptionalism as an idea definitely exists, mm-hmm. um, and while we can definitely try to point out parts of America that may have been den- done better as a country, may have done better uh, compared to other countries, uh, a lot of people very much believe that us as a global superpower and how we have acted is almost the exact same as any other previous global superpower, looking at places like Britain, looking at places like France when they were uh, literal superpowers, even China, if you go looking that far back. Okay. Um, and so with that in mind, like it's because it is so vague, because it is so weird, it's not only hard to pin, pinpoint down what it is, but it also makes it so that when you're arguing and if it exists or not, mm-hmm. it becomes very hard for you to definitively put down the argument because no matter what they will point to something and to put down everything about a country that might not be number one number two is just difficult (laughs) it's it's uh it's very much a proving a negative that's a very good point and i think that's uh another rut of this whole topic is you know it's i don't think you can ever really um refute this claim because the people who support it, no problem. The people who support this idea are the ones who, uh, you know, just wholeheartedly believe it. So it's like part ways, um, I want to say um, propaganda, part ways, just how people uh, envision themselves. And a lot of like politics plays into this. So you see the Republican Party, they're kind of the bastions of these ideas a lot of the time. 
But I mean, that's not to say that Democrats don't do the same thing. Um, but I, your, your point brings up a good one. And I, I mean, it is a good point. And I think another thing to talk about in, in that respect is other countries like, like you know, it's, it's so funny that we just neglect all the other countries when we think of ourselves. Like, like you said, we're shoulders and uh, heads above other, these other places. <laughs> Head and shoulders. <laughs> not the shampoo. We're not sponsored, though. Um, but, you know, like, we disregard so much of what other countries are doing because of that fact or because we feel that we are supreme in, in our, in our you know, workings. And, and that's where a lot of these issues come in is like, well, then at what point can we criticize America? Like, at what point is it going too far to say that we are so extreme and so, you know, out there that we can't even question what's going on in our history. Mm. And I, I think that's the rut and that's where so many issues stem and so many of my own personal issues with American exceptionalism come from. So building on that a little bit, uh, not famously, but President Obama made a point that he did believe in American exceptionalism, but he also believed in exceptionalism for different countries like Greek exceptionalism, uh, French exceptionalism, like, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit here. Um, it's very much clear that every country is uh, exceptional in the sense that they are number one at something. They are the best at doing a specific thing. Like, I, I am pretty sure no matter where you go, you will always find something that a country excels at, no, uh, even if it's right. small scale. No, 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 I know what you mean. I know what you mean. And I, I, this is kind of what I, I was trying to mention, but I kind of danced around is like, I think other countries, not that they think the same way, obviously, but like all other countries want to be special. And they all are. I mean, we're, you know, breaking it down to the most basic, we, we're all humans. We're all people. And it's like everybody's individual. Everybody has their own perspective, their thoughts, their opinions. Their, they have the right to think how they want to. And so I think like we neglect a lot of that thinking this in this perspective of American exceptionalism. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to return on this idea a lot a little bit later. Um, because that kind of was the, the driving factor for why I want to talk about this. But we'll get, we'll get back to that. So I wanted to kind of explain a little bit about um, my research in this. And this is my, might be where Liam has some uh, potential issues with, with my, my stuff. But the following uh, that I'm going to be explaining comes from a lecture series that is called Myths of America. And it was presented... Uh, through MIT, they were the ones who created the lecture series, and so Howard Zinn is the one who was showcased uh, in this in the episode that I watched, and he's exploring the myth of American exceptionalism. So he is the uh, author of *The People's History of the United States*. He's a historian, playwright, self-described democratic socialist, uh, as well as being the chair of the history and social sciences department at Spelman College and political science professor at PU. So with those kind of accredit accreditations behind him. I mean, Zinn is um, an interesting figure in many ways as, as Noam Chomsky is because they both, I think, coming out of, even in the 1980s, like when that when his book was published and as well as when Chomsky was, you know, beginning into the, well, I mean, not beginning, but when he was on the head of the intellectual stage, were, were very much um, going against the grain and that they were talking about issues that a lot of Americans were kind of neglecting. So the idea of like, you know, Native Americans, what happened to them? Like they're, you know, they're all wiped out. Like what, you know, what exactly was going on there? But I mean, that's not really Noam's focus, but the idea of like the bad that America does. And I think a lot of people neglect that. And that was like the Reagan era. That was when very much so this idea of American exceptionalism was, was fostering and, and building. So I think that they're both interesting in that they come out against it around that same time, you know, kind of counterculture to what a lot of Americans believe. But so Zinn talks about um, just kind of some precursors to what we'd call American exceptionalism. And so he looks at uh, this, you know, the 1630s address by this Massachusetts Bay Colony governor um, whose name is, is, is Governor Winthrop. And essentially what he, his claim was, was that America was going to become, well, obviously it wasn't America at the time, but the, the, that colony was like a city on a hill. And he's referencing the, the biblical, uh, you know, allegory of a city on a hill being, you know, uh, this idealistic society, this society that everyone else could look at and point to and be like, oh, okay, you know, these are the guys we need to follow. These are the people that, that need to be um, you know, looked at as an example. 
And I think, you know, sorry, did you want to jump in there? Or did you have something to so say? So my, I, I kind of disagree with that. But my opinion in my research has very much boiled down to the fact that uh, American exceptionalism and nationalism are two very separate things. Yes. Um, when I think about this uh, land in the Shining Hill, uh, I think that could have been the start of a new nationalism separate from that of the colonizers, um, like initial country uh, origin. Kind of, as soon as they came there, they were kind of transitioning because they yeah. had people there and then they were becoming something else. Yeah. And, yeah, and they were trying to grow to be more. But I, from what I have read, uh, the idea of American exceptionalism is beyond that. Like there's pride in a country in the sense of nationalism. And then American exceptionalism is kind of an expansion on that saying that we are spreading it. Uh, we are mm -hmm. spreading those ideas. We are pushing that beyond. Um, we are doing it kind of uh, kind of out of the goodness of our heart, uh, depending on how it's framed. Depending on you're talking I, <laughs> It's not necessarily that American exceptionalism, at least in my research, has a starting place considering most uh, – uh, the time we're kind of looking back, especially with American exceptionalism being a very new term, mm -hmm. it's just that nationalism uh, in the start of that and the idea that we are suddenly better, I consider to be two separate things rather than like you build nationalism and then build on that more. No, yeah. I mean, and I think my point of including this explicitly, and it's going to connect with uh, a, a just right after that but i think my point in including that was to show like these religious and and moral kind of um understandings of who we are as a people you know began all the way back in the colonies before there was a constitution before there was a you know united states before there was uh you know, not just colonies but groups of states and people that were coming together to understand these things so i i think my point is is that it shows like you know human nature and that you know, people have always kind of sought these ideas out that that they are special and like that's all like everybody wants to feel like they're special everybody wants to think that they're uh, unique in their own way and i think that that was just my uh reason for including that just gotcha. to show that so yeah just to bounce off that um so going on looking at how i mentioned before ronald reagan he really was the one he he said in a speech in a very powerful speech um yeah claiming that America was this shining city on the hill. So he added the shining part, but uh, you, you see the connections. It's a religious connection, which which is huge for Reagan. That was one of his biggest things, was bringing religion back into the mix of uh, the conservative and Republican wing. But then you also think, you know, the shining city, like we're now so much better. We're now so much brighter. And then you obviously understand the context of this was right in the middle of the Cold War, at the end of the Cold War, um, we were, of the free market we were pursuing these ideas these liberties and we were making sure that countries were following us and they were they were behind us on that and so obviously it's like you know always america at the front of the of it bringing these ideas forward and being the the pioneer essentially yeah building on that a little bit um antonin scalia uh one of our judges who passed away relatively recently the supreme court judge uh used to say that america was exceptional because of its separation of powers. Mm -hmm. And when he would explain that to people in Europe, they'd say, oh, that adds so much like complication, that slows things down. And he viewed it as like a, a very beautiful thing in that we should literally, quote, learn to love the gridlock <laughs> because it like expands on our ability as a country to shut things down to make sure that if a law is getting passed it is passing many levels of review yeah. um and i think in an ideal situation like it's not a bad idea yeah like and uh making sure that you have a rigorous vetting system for like laws reviews and that type of thing and he very much bases that like in the constitution in that like very religious idea that we are like uh like blessed by god to a certain degree like the constitution is blessed by uh in this case we're talking about the christian god mm -hmm. um and i feel like that really ties into your reagan comment because like reagan bringing religion back into it antonin scalia is still like following that building on it and like really pushing for why that is a part of america being exceptional yeah no i mean 
Scalia, yeah, very interesting perspective there. And I, he's very on the record of saying that America is the best because of God and because we follow God. And it brings a lot of questions up, not for this episode, about, uh, you know, separation of church and state, separation of, you know, at, at what point is, is that going too far? You know, one of eight Supreme Court justices. So you know, really powerful guy saying all this stuff. And I think uh, the, the, the issue with arguing with that, that statement is, you know, obviously it's, it's a one that everybody would agree with. We want a very stringent system to, to vet the bills on. We want to make sure that what's getting passed is in the benefit of everyone and that there is a way of, you know, confounding that if for some reason there was a um, political issue where you know, there was a bill that might have severe uh, issue you know, might have severe impacts on a bunch of people. We want to make sure that we can stop it in its tracks. And that's why the American system is so, is so well, works so well. But he's also a strict textualist. And he very was focused on, you know, we have to read this document as it was intended and as it was written. And you can't, I, in my perspective, it's so hard to, to go back and look at it as the founders did it when we're, you know, how many hundreds of years from that now? Like, how much has changed? What is new? Like, how can we, you know, take new ideas and implement them into our system and make things a little bit different? And it doesn't mean that we have to go, you know, directly against the founders. But this just kind of goes back to my idea of not wanting to change and, and not being open to look for new ideas and, and at other countries, you know, the idea that this is how the founders wrote it. So this is how it should be. And nothing should change because of that really sits wrong with me in that. Like I said, everything has changed and, and we need something new. I mean, gridlock is great until, you know, how many millions of people have died from COVID or however it is, you know, like we, there's got to be a point where we understand and say, hey, this is a great system in theory, but it's practically not working very well. And, and why are we the only country to have this, one of the only countries to have this specific system set up? We have to ask these questions and realize, are they beneficial for all peoples? is my perspective um and to, to kind of go off of that as well because zin talks a lot about the idea of like a religious supremacy the idea that america is in such a justifiably higher state than other places because of god and so this is a really big part he goes a lot about about this with bush because bush was was you know, famed as being able to literally talk to God. He, he mentions this a few times. Um, he mentions like the idea that he was elected because God wanted him to be elected. And very interesting. Yeah, Liam's shaking his head because... I just... So not to dive too far into this, but like I wanna, I wanna American exceptionalism and like American nationalism after the Cold War got so heavily tied into religion and we can clearly see in like American exceptionalism how it is very literally elevated to a religious level yeah. um, where a lot of people are looking at it going like, we, we have to be the best. We should be the best. Like we owe it to people to be the best. And that I completely disagree with that entire line of thinking, but like it really goes to show how hard it is to like, discuss american exceptionalism with americans especially because it is just either you really don't believe in it entirely or it's a very like religious do not question like you need to believe type of thing like a mantra like if you don't like it you can get out a lot of yeah kind of like that um but but so i, I have something about that later i want to get to <laughs> sorry i just I, i'm jumping around i know but um one of the things that Zen talks a lot about in his speech on American exceptionalism, if I can find it, is, like I mentioned, the idea of um, using religion as a means of, of explaining how we are so you know, divinely um, chosen for this, for our rights. So you look at, it's almost like you use God as a way of relinquishing um, any human morality. So we... we like we don't have to question what's going on we don't have to 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 think is this a morally correct choice because god's behind it you know god's backing it so how can it be wrong how can we question his judgment which i think a lot of people uh, who are religious would agree that that's how they they view a lot of things and so it's so tricky when you cross government and god like that 
because at what point does those things end? Like, at what point is the government's actions no longer gods and and the, the humans? Like, at what point is morality even brought into it? So we have a whole another set of moral standards for ourselves as we do compared to other countries. You know, other countries are are awful or they're whatever, but they're they're not driven by God. So we can't trust them as much as we can trust our own ideals. There's a lot to rip into there, into there, but I'm going to avoid most of it by just saying we have definitely put ourselves in a position where American nationalism, uh, religion, the idea that we we owe it to a higher power in a certain sense. Manifest destiny is us like taking over, um, expanding into these lands that are left for that us. That were given to us. Yeah, that we have to bring freedom, liberty, democracy to other countries because they can't do it themselves. Like that, which is bullshit, I want to clarify, but like that whole like belief that we have to be the ones to do it. We have to bring the light from that shining city to others. It's just incredibly warped. Definitely. And it really builds into this situation where we have this American exceptionalism almost as a, uh, I could argue, an ultra-nationalism, where you have like your regular belief in nationalism. You can be ultra-nationalist in the sense that you fully believe in the state. You believe it's done no wrongs. But it could, you can almost look at it as a, a bonus onto that rather yeah. than necessarily a separate thing where yeah. people are just taking it a level further. And I would say that in many respects, I, and this is going back to the idea of the Republicans kind of really um, grabbing at the idea of exceptionalism, because that's really their big push. And I think um, to mention what you mentioned, what you said before about uh, Obama even saying that he, he agreed with it. I think oh. that is, you know, that is how far things have come is like, even as a Democrat, you can't say American exceptionalism is kind of a BS idea or like even question that notion because it has been come so ingrained in our culture and become so ingrained in our you know education systems, in our cultural systems, in our media. It's 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 inescapable. And I think you know politicians have to run on it and have to say America first because that's what gets them the votes that they need. So yeah, like I like religion is a huge part of that, like we just mentioned. Um, and so, yeah, it just kind of gives us a whole different set of moral standards for our own actions, which, again, we can justify by saying you know, God's, te God's telling us it's right. We got to go for it. And you look at like Bush's actions, you know, obviously getting us into all those issues in the Middle East and, and you know, Afghanistan, which we're still in currently, like his a lot, of, not a lot of his justifications, obviously, but he would probably agree that like you know, to some extent God had told him to do that. And I think a lot of Republicans would also jump on that and say that is something that um, you know, religion is a driving force behind that. And I think it's just we have to separate those things. If we ever want to have any accountability for a government's actions, for how we see understand our country as a, you know, as a history, like historically, there's just so many uh, gray areas and issues that come up in understanding it that way that I feel. I mean, I feel like that's an awful way to look at things. I don't disagree. I think when it comes down to it, um, we we can't look. Uh, we can look at American exceptionalism in a very objective sense. Um, maybe later on in the episode, I'll fully break it down. But like, we can pretty objectively say that it's not special. It's not special in a like monetary figures, global power sense. Yeah. Um, we can very. Uh, much prove that with numbers through relations to other global powers mm -hmm. but to go after that belief that nationalism that that ultra um like I'm religious view it. towards it that it is very much a part of us that we are like exploring it is something that we have a lot more trouble like getting uh over because it is just so deeply ingrained in who we are yeah, yeah. Um, and that kind of reminds me of a point that Zinn makes at the beginning, or this might have been something that I wrote down, but like so, I think that so many people have an issue with this. And I think a lot of people in our, that would be possibly connected with our age group, think of the same thing. Like, you know, how can we be, patri 
there should be a way where we can be patriotic without being blind to all of America's faults. Like there's got to be a way that we can, you know, reach that point where we are for the country, but at the same time, we're for addressing these social ills and all of these issues that have occurred. Whereas American exceptionalism in many ways uh, will write those ideas off as being, you know, oh, you're anti-America. Oh, you're against how America is being run. And uh, you see it a lot with like Israel as well, but I mean, that's a whole other episode. Oh, the Israel-Palestine conflict. But, you know what I mean? Like, it, there, there is a middle ground. And I think not, not currently there isn't, but I think that there can be, and there should be a middle ground in that we can be patriotic. Like I can say I'm for America, but I'm not for America going into Afghanistan. I'm not for America invading these other countries to spread liberty, to spread democracy when we're all just, you know, profit, profiteering and, and killing these innocent people. Like, the, you know what I mean? There's, there's, a, mm. there's a middle ground that I think so many people uh, miss. I think that very much a part of the American culture, education system, and everything else is the focus on us yeah. and what we have done differently. Mm-hmm. Rather, because like we look at things in our education system, like the Seven Years' War, and we only talk about like how America was very lightly involved, rather than discussing the global chain of events we caused. Like it's just it's very much like oh look at these events in isolation, and it makes it harder for people to understand just how like interconnected so many events are. Um, I can I can I jump on that? Um, yeah, I mentioned so so. In my research, one of the things that I came across, which, again, I, I don't know, I'm not a teacher, I'm not a historian, I'm not any of these things, but uh, it's it's interesting because I really wanted to like look into it and see, well, okay, so what makes you know, what, like maybe what is America doing differently in that in that uh, history standpoint? Like, how are we teaching people about um, our country? And I think you know both of us growing up in in uh, like different areas, but like probably very similar standards of like, this is what we learned, this is American history. And it's very like kind of narrow almost. And it's only been recently that a lot of people have, have kind of taken against and being like, well, hey, maybe we should have more perspectives from other people who aren't American or who aren't just white, you know, rich men or whatever. Like, I think those are very um, claims that a lot of people have make that I, I would agree with. But we look at it uh, in, in American history, it's called diplomatic history, uh, which is what America, but what American education system uh, explains it as. And it is presented in the history of international relations um, between states. So diplomatic history can differ from international relations in that the former can concern itself with the foreign policy of one state, while the latter deals with relations between two or more. So, so diplomatic um, history essentially is looking at, you know, how did America come out of these these you know, treaties, these agreements, whatever this, all of these issues, um, you know, without looking at both sides, with looking at to the extent of what did America gain, what did America lose, uh, how did it help us, how did it hurt us, and we very much lose that nuance of we're interconnected. There's other countries that are being affected by these things. Um, so I, I'm pretty sure this is still in effect, and this is still an idea that a lot of uh, you know the education system. The education system pushes for a lot of people, and I would say within my own education, I would definitely attest to the fact that this is uh, this is happening. And and so it's like this is how in, how enrooted these ideas are, and that we're. I mean, obviously you can't teach like fifth graders the whole like geopolitical spectrum and understanding all these different events. And so there is some extent to like an argument being made that this just simplifies things a lot. And I would agree that that's not a bad thing. But but you know what I mean? Like hey, the, little Michael, can you explain what started the Israel-Palestine conflict from the <laughs> 1600s on? <laughs> uh, give me five minutes. I get my PowerPoint set up. <laughs> but but you know what I mean? Like uh, yeah, there's a there's a level there, and I think there there definitely is kind of this change that's happening, and a lot of teachers are getting more freedom behind what they can teach and how they can explain America and the history of it, uh, especially you going into like high school and then even college. So yeah, I just thought it was a good connection to bring up. Um, oh, am I allowed to jump into? All yeah. right, so, all right. So I'm gonna make a little bit of a topic, not shift here, but definitely break into something real quick. So when we talk American exceptionalism, it is very important to consider the fact that a lot of people consider it just a blatant myth. Mm-hmm. So when we look at people like um, Noam Chomsky, 
He very literally says, powerful states have quite typically considered themselves to be exceptionally magnificent, and the United States is no exception to that. The basis for this is not substantial, to put it politely. Uh, he also makes a very direct comparison of the United States to Britain in its heyday. We're thinking um, 1600s-esque, uh, the Opium Wars, um, Indian Trading Company. Like at the time, it was, was considered the greatest country in the world. They were literally spreading their rule for the unenlightened people, both their faith, but both their way of like uh, living, like literally everything. Mm -hmm. And so they clearly saw themselves as the greatest country, then they had a literal duty to spread that. Mm -hmm. uh, if you'd consider that like a Britain exceptionalism, that's <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's hard. But it's definitely safe to say that when everyone is a global superpower uh, at some point, mm -hmm. people will try to justify that both morally, religiously, uh, in every way, every way they can to see to not only use their goals and maximize their strength to try to stay as a global superpower for longer, but also to like morally lift their citizens like up in the sense that we should have pride, we need nationalism, like we need a very strong belief in who we are. Yeah. And so when we dig into that a little bit deeper, it becomes far more complicated. Like in America, a study of the international American sim, uh, system published by the Royal Institute of International Affairs in London concluded that while the US pays lip service to democracy, the real commitment is to private capitalist enterprise. When the rights of investors are threatened, democracy has to go. If these rights are sa safeguarded, killers and torturers will do just fine. So like, and that's also from Noam Chomsky. Yeah. What, when we're talking about spreading these beliefs, when we're talking about, for example, the United States doing, uh, going into other countries and spreading its democracy, spreading its ideas, it's being cloaked in a sense of American exceptionalism. Like we are doing this from the good of our heart. We are, we are definitely doing right by these people but in reality it's literally just like a very closed nexus private capitalist enterprise that is doing everything and we have points like panama where they didn't want us to build the panama canal and we did it anyways we have points like uh i believe it's honduras el salvador how many examples yeah with the banana companies there's oh yeah yeah like it Literally, they're literally the middle east half of mexico i mean yeah Native where mexico. we where we did the mexican-american war uh and we literally beat mexico to manifest destiny all the untaken lands there all the open land it was free real estate Liam. What you it mean? was all free real estate except for you know the native americans on there See, and this sorry are you, i don't want to jump. yeah you can go in um and this really connects with what i was saying earlier um and it really kind of got me thinking um so like i mentioned like there's got to be a way we can balance those ideas where again like we want to be patriotic but at the same time we want to understand our faults and i you know that doesn't cut it like that that isn't a good excuse for why we should go into those places and why we should you know, whatever invade iraq why we should go into latin america secretly and and uh you know install our own dictators for the guise of stopping communism when really it was just to support you know, whatever business interests were there. And and yeah, he make, Chomsky makes a great point there saying that it's supporting these capital owners, it's supporting these people who are already so enriched that they're now gonna lose whatever you know, exactly is going on there, whatever um, you know, profit they're making by whatever, so by like America coming in and protecting those interests and those rights. Yeah, and, and it building, really, oh, sorry. Was, and I was gonna say like, it really makes you think because Without the exceptionalism, without you know the regular people, you know the lay people, let's just say, um, ascribing to those same ideals, so being able to, to, oh yeah, America's great. We, you know, without those people, like the boots on the ground, essentially, the people who are then going to go into the military, who are then going to enlist and and um, you know be the people who who instill that change, who fight those leaders or who fight those other countries, um, we wouldn't have that. Like without that workforce of people there'd be no way for those capital owners to, uh, you know, push their ideas and push their, their agenda. 
so it's like almost like you know maybe this exceptionalism was was instilled as a way of of man maintaining the system maintaining the status quo of of you know propping up these companies and, and these businesses so it's just something that came to mind when you were mentioning all that stuff yeah, so we can pretty safely say that America became a global power after the Second World War, especially when it had like something like 90% of the world's gold supply. Like, mm. It was crazy. And when that happened, American planners very uh, much laid out a plan called the Grand Area, where they had like a specific area under U.S. control where they were not ex- – uh, or the U.S. would not tolerate any expression of sovereignty and interference with U.S. global designs, where there was no competitors permitted. And it was like we very much built our like nationalism, American exceptionalism, not on like a we should help people, but with a very literal economic, like powerful, uh, how we can become stronger, um, like mindset. Like how we can exert our influence in the way that most um, benefits our stakeholders. Uh, that sounds stakeholders. so much better than how I said it. <laughs> well, the stakeholders being those people, that small group, that nexus of, uh, you know, really the people who exert the most influence in the society. Yeah. So, so then, yeah. like, is it really what I'm trying to build the narrative around here is like, we aren't the first global superpower. We're not the first global superpower to think ourselves amazing and exceptional. Mm-hmm. Uh, we very much did everything out of our own interest, improving our own uh, like uh, like position in the world, trying to make the most amount of money. Uh, we've killed thousands of people, even hundreds of thousands of people, conquered half of Mexico, invaded the Philippines even before we were a global power. Yeah. Like we have very much done like these horrifying things as a nation that will forever scar us we have done all of this like planning to make sure things are going well to spread american influence so it puts into question the whole idea of american exceptionalism at least for me because mm-hmm. when people describe it and they're like we're spreading our liberty like we're 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 trying to be the nation on the hill we're trying to be the best of the best i don't feel like we're even remotely trying for that what we have done is we have set ourselves up to become more powerful not out of the kindness of our heart not to spread democracy not to spread liberty just to make money like yeah making money Monet. <laughs> and that's i would argue that's a bad thing but that's a totally different side topic um it like it just it doesn't feel like american exceptionalism is anything that is different than what has come before, especially with like Britain doing the opium wars to get in more money, mm-hmm. two opium wars to be clear. Mm-hmm. And that's just, I don't understand how people can make the argument that we're better, that we're different, that we're all of this. If we know that our actions have been repeated in the past by other global powers on top of the fact that like nothing we've done has ever really been just out of the kindness of our heart, that we've never really done like that type of uh philanthropy and that doesn't that that kind of really throws the whole idea into bogus territory for me (laughs) i mean i would i would definitely agree for many of the same reasons but i think a lot of the the shortfallings of like why people don't um think that same way is they don't have the same understanding of american relations in america like our history that you that you would or that even i would like they they're not reading these things by noam chomsky they're not listening to these you know, presentations by howard zinn so honestly noam chomsky is the best he's the best <laughs> well, if he die, i swear to god dude, quote like me, if he dies i'm gonna be pissed he's i will literally have an episode just crying over the man for an hour sorry anyways yeah yeah but, yeah no liam loves him and I, I mean he's really good and um but like they, see we are like not enlightened but we're like we're, our eyes are opening like the rosy glasses are coming off and we're we're looking at it for what it is we're looking at it for you know the 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 you know the shit the the log is out of our eye we're seeing what you know is really happening um and it's just like I, it's so hard to convince other people that these things are real and like people um in a lot of ways would just kind of accept the myth of exceptionalism because it's easier than viewing us as a failing state as a place that's you know is 
slowly crumbling. We're losing our position in the world stage in so many ways and for so many reasons. And I would argue a big part of that is the literal myth of exceptionalism itself. We're, we're not expanding as a country. We're not learning from others. We're dooming ourselves to the same mistakes that we keep making over and over again. And this goes back to the whole, you know, how our political system is set up, the, the gridlock, the, you know, divisiveness. I mean, all of that stuff is coming back to that. So building on that even more here, after World War II, when most other European countries were like destroyed, when they were rebuilding, <laughs> like, they made major social changes, yeah. fundamental ones yeah, to yeah. both constitutions, to how they treated people. And America as the victors never felt the need to do that because we won, we're rich, like we're clearly like the good people. Yeah. Um, and that makes things complicated because when we see these other European countries like doing these changes, trying to become like exceptional, special, support their people, change their politics, and we're just like, no, like we don't have to do that. I feel like some of it stems from there because, yes, we did win. And yes, if we won, I can understand why people are like, we don't have to change. But ultimately, like, we can't keep believing in an American nationalism in a system that doesn't have to change, that doesn't have to improve because we just keep winning. Yeah. When in reality, like, yes, the horse we are riding can probably be pushed farther. We can probably ride this for maybe another 60 years, maybe, 100 years. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure that America would probably not completely collapse or necessarily fall into a civil war as long as uh, the proletariat is not turned against the elites. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just, what is that really the horse we should be betting on? Should we really not be doing those changes? Should we really believe in that we're exceptional if we're not willing to like try exceptional ideas? And it's just, I don't know. I don't know. And I think that it's, you know, up it's, in the air. To some extent, it's never, you know, we've never really been, it's never been tried. We've never even given credence to a lot of, a lot of those, like you were saying, like universal healthcare, like all these things that so many other countries take for granted and, and have is like a, you know, very basic uh, function of the government. And here it's, you know, unquestionable. I mean, people support it in a lot of ways, but there's a lot of people who are against it. So it's like, I like the nodding, by the way. <laughs> Sorry. So it's like, you know, um, yeah, this is my whole kind of impetus for doing this episode because I really thought of, you know, when we were talking about the welfare system, when we were talking about gun control, and there's so many examples and so many ways we can pull from other places to look and be like, oh, well, how, what did these countries do? Oh, like what, you know, oh, oh you're telling me that like you know, Australia banned all their guns in you know, X amount of time? I mean, and again, this heavy, heavy asterisk here, obviously <laughs> America is not any of these places. That doesn't mean that we can't learn from other people. We can't take their ideas and build on them. Make them better, hell. I don't, you know, why? There's just a lot of, la there's like a lack of discourse of trying to understand what other countries are doing. And it goes back to the, I don't know, in my mind, it goes back to the myth of American exceptionalism. And a, a lot of people would argue, that, you know, why are we doing this? Why are we continuing these archaic policies? Why are we not learning from others? And it's like, well, that's the way it is. That's how America is. You, you don't like America, you can get the hell out of here. Like, those notions and those ideas, I think for so many of our generation, it's like so soul crushing because we we can look at all these other places and, and feel like, well, why the hell aren't we doing that? Why aren't we being meeting these basic needs? And then you understand, oh, it was propped up. It was a, a system set up by these these elites for themselves. And you realize, oh, okay, maybe that makes, you know, oh, that kind of explains a lot of these issues and it explains why. Um, so much of it has failed for so many people who aren't, you know, the top 1% or whatever it may be. Um, it's just kind of disheartening. And I think a lot of people feel this way, even if they don't know it, or even if they, they are, you know, aren't necessarily uh, privy to the same information that we are, and they don't have the same understanding that we do, or whatever, uh, you know, there's just deep down, people can think and look at this and be like, there's something wrong, and we need to uh, learn and grow. And I, it's just, it's so hard to do that with what we have right now, I think, in so many ways. Um, and it, it kind of brings up an idea that Howard Zinn uh, was talking about a lot. And um, so it, 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 he talks about the idea of, um, he compares 
kind of how America views, let's just say, cap, like uh, communism. So you think of like McCarthyism, you think of all of these ways that America was so anti-communism and so against it. Um, you know, not going into too much depth here, but yeah. uh, Winston Churchill talks a little bit about uh, communism within England. And he says in a speech he was giving, he says um, that as far as he knew, the Communist Party was composed, composed of Englishmen and he did not fear an Englishman. So you see, it's like a cultural barrier here. They, uh, what, what he's saying there is that, you know, these are Englishmen. They have the right to looking at these other ideas and, and understanding them, even if they're, how futile they may be. But there's no reason why we shouldn't just entertain them or give them that right to do that. And, and you look at Europe and you see like a, a lot of this is kind of deals with nationality and, and the idea of like, you know, how homogenous a lot of these people are. And that's another pe thing people bring up. Well, America isn't very homogenous. We're not, we're very diverse. So we need new ideas. We need things that are different from these people. And, and it just kind of goes back to that. Well, yeah, are we really just going to sit here and, and, and take this and not actually uh, learn from others? So yeah. I, it was just a very interesting point that he made there. And so you look at, um, being an American or what it means to be an American. And it is very much an ideological commitment. You know, like we were saying, we can't question these things. We can't uh, be, you can't, you know, oh, you're, you're criticizing America, you're anti-American. It's very much an ideological statement. Um, you know, it is a mat it's not even a matter of birth. It's just, if you're saying these things, like I bet a lot of Republicans might listen to this and be like, these guys are anti-American, they hate America. And, and it's not a nationalistic thing, or I mean, it, it is, but it's not a birth thing. It's a ideological uh, spectrum. And I think that really is pushing it down and making it so hard to break away from it. Yeah, fundamentally, when we're looking at this, to pull one, another quote from Noam Chomsky, democracy isn't a yes or no affair. It's, it isn't even a more or less affair. It has many dimensions. I mean, uh, in some respects, the United States is very free. Mm -hmm. like we can't keep looking at the world that we're living in and the world that america is existing in in american democracy itself as like a win more we need to do a certain way or get out we need to do this we need to stay above everyone like it, it's so much more complicated it's so much more complicated in how we look at ourselves how we're willing to express ideas how we're willing to even like discuss things in our country and frankly there is no uh, or at least right now it is becoming harder to see those dimensions of more yes no more or less because so much of the time with media with how like the rich explain things to the common people how they turn them against each other and blarty blarty blar mm -hmm. people just like fail to realize just how many options we have just what america it being concept more than like a very literal thing in a lot of people's eyes is yeah. so malleable yeah. and how like we can have that type of American exceptionalism. We can have that type of ultra nationalism as long as we are willing to mold it and change it and shift it into what is best for us rather than focusing on like a specific thing. And it's just, it's disappointing. It's exactly. just disappointing. Exactly. exactly. Like I'm saying, I think so many people who, if they get this far, I don't know how many people actually will, but like so many people would agree, especially those from our age group. I don't know. In many ways, it feels like, obviously, I, was, <laughs> I wasn't around in the uh, 70s, but like the whole anti-war movement, the whole, you know, mass of people saying, we're not okay with this. We don't agree. You know, we want, uh, you know, why, why are we going in? Like questioning all of these government motives, like what's going on? What's happening here? What, who's being helped here? Like what democracy are you spreading or what what it actually is the focus and i don't know it there's just a like compounding amount of issues now that that feel the same way even if it's not you know obviously as rallying as a war or something like that but like we look at healthcare, we look at um you know the welfare system a lot of the topics we talked about gun control like you know the list goes on where it's just it feels so tough to have these discussions and it feels so so you know, it's almost like there's no point in, in talking with a lot of people who, who want to bring up the idea of American exceptionalism, because then they're never going to change. They're never going to agree to, to do anything differently because we're so great. We don't need to change. And it's just, it's sad. Yeah, it's sad. I mean, at the end of the day is what I'd say.
so yeah um that's kind of all i had let me see i might have like a little bit more did you want to add anything at all or the only thing that i think we haven't covered that i want to mention is yeah. that american exceptionalism uh the term itself is very recent we should point that out Mm -hmm. which makes it very hard for us to pinpoint it back to a specific thing though we could easily point to like building blocks that set it like set it up as an idea that could come to fruition like little dominoes being placed so really like american exceptionalism isn't something that we necessarily need to throw away that's necessarily terrible for the country for people to believe in it it's just, it's how it's being handled. It's how it's being used as a weapon of like, you either believe in what America can be and all of this greatness, or you don't believe in it at all. How they may try to make it a very black and white thing rather than literally just saying, the point of America is that it is an ever-changing boiling pot. Like, mm -hmm. uh, and it can be altered in that way. And now that we're finally starting to enter an era where that can happen, where whites are no longer the majority, where yeah. like uh, people have more wealth being s not spread around in the sense that wealth inequality is totally a thing, but in the sense that people are starting to realize more the power they have. When mm -hmm. we look at things recently like GameStop where just a bunch of investors were able to nuke a hedge fund. <laughs> like yeah. they, people are, I, I like to hope, are slowly realizing just how much power they have and can kind of start to grasp the fact that American exceptionalism can be like possible, can be like a theoretical idea, uh, something that someone could like put some belief into, but ultimately just is a myth. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know how else to, to end that other than you can believe in it you can definitely put hope in it you can truly believe in your country yeah but it's just it, it's it goes back to the idea of like we can be a you can be patriotic and you can want the best for the country without always dick riding and saying that america is literally doing everything perfectly fine like there's yeah. a lot of criticisms that can be made and which we have been trying to do in our previous episodes so uh, a lot of criticism just more like the death of a thousand needles stabbing into america one step at a time <laughs> all interconnected and interlaced so you can't just pull out one on its own uh, on a super fast side note yeah. like if for people who don't believe in like the political nexus of entrepreneurs that like control the, the country yeah like just recently with GameStop, like they took down a hedge fund, cost them something like $4 billion, I think it's at right now. Insane. And then they were easily able to get like a $2.6 billion loan from another hedge fund yeah, to keep them floating. And then Robinhood was helping them out by stop, move, stopping the movement of game. Like if you can't tell me that after seeing something like that, there isn't like a group of people, maybe not like – like a secret shadow cabal, but definitely a group of people who has a major control over wealth, like you're bullshitting me. It's yeah, no, I mean, and it's just, again, that goes back to the idea that like we can use American exceptionalism as a way of, of uh, closing our eyes and not being, you know, aware of what's going on and, and saying, well, it's okay. You know, it's a free market. We're going to let you know, the, uh, we're going to let the, the, the hedge funds do what they want with their own money and they can, you know, blow it or whatever and use the stock market like it's a casino but um irregular people can't i don't know there yeah there's a lot to talk about and i yeah. want to jump onto a tangent so with that being said if you don't have any final words actually i do have a recommendation this week williams is it going to be noam chomsky oh man you could always read noam chomsky but uh actually there's a youtube channel called extra credits and they do uh, about 50-minute history lessons uh, with, like, pictures and stuff uh, about different conflicts in history. And they have about 40 of them right now. Okay. Uh, not, not episodes, like, like series, each of them containing about five. They're, like, there's a lot. 
with a lot of um, and if people want to get like a, a quick dive understanding of a few like world conflicts and start to understand like the more interconnected nature of things mm-hmm. literally learning more conflicts and learning more and seeing how they just touch each other lightly can do wonders for helping you get like a bigger picture on things that's a cool recommendation. So yeah, shout outs to them. I, check them out. And like I, I mentioned, I talked a lot about that Howard Zinn myth of exceptionalism. Uh, that's another great place. He expounds in a lot more than we had time to touch on. But yeah, I mean, if you guys find this conversation interesting, check those two out and learn more. Think for yourselves. Yeah, follow social medias. Follow, yeah, get hit the bell back. icon. Is that what we're supposed to say on YouTube? Bell, <laughs> to get reminded. I'm going to go back. We're going to do this. Like, I'm going to read them out. Again, this has been the Exceptionally American episode. <laughs> um, so our Twitter is AM, all one word. Our Instagram is strangleholds on America. And then our YouTube is strangle space holds, space on, space America. And that's where you can see our beautiful faces talking about this podcast, having this conversation. Thanks. And again, think for yourself and uh, have a wonderful day, wonderful week.